Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's always the third Sunday of January. And if you're not familiar with that expression, sanctity of human life, let me just explain that. The word sanctity means uniqueness, specialness. And what we're talking about when we say that human life has sanctity is we are saying human life is special, it's unique, it's distinct. There is something about human beings that sets us apart from every other creature on the planet, and that something we know is called the image of God. God created human beings, us, alone to bear his image, and because of that, Every human life matters. Every human life should be granted dignity and respect and justice. That's not the world we live in. Under current law in the United States, if a human being is not yet born and if they are unwanted, they can legally be put to death any time up until the moment that they are born. And that is a great injustice if indeed the unborn are truly human because it is unjust to intentionally take the life of an innocent human being. I mean, we know that. We know that from Scripture. Pretty much that's the way we live in virtually every area of life except this one. It's a great injustice to intentionally take the life of an innocent human being. And everything we know, everything we know from science, from biology, from embryology, everything we know from Scripture demonstrates conclusively that the unborn are truly human. Which means that elective abortion on demand unjustly takes the life of defenseless human beings 3,200 times a day in our nation. 32. Now, just to put that in perspective, just under 3,000 lives were lost in the terrorist attacks of 9-11. So imagine a 9-11 happening every day. That's the scope. But we can become very numb to that, This is an unpleasant topic, to say the least. Talking about it inevitably stirs up strong emotions, painful emotions, painful memories for a number of people. So the question maybe is, well, why why talk about it? Why not talk about other kinds of injustice that aren't nearly so controversial? Well, two reasons, at least. There's probably more, but two I'll mention. And the first and the most important is that in talking about it, there's an opportunity to proclaim the grace of Jesus Christ to forgive and to heal. Uh, We just sang, sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. For those who have had abortions, for those who have encouraged abortions, for those who have been indifferent those of us who've been indifferent to the injustice of it, the answer for our guilt is not to ignore it. It's not to rationalize it. Um, 
the answer is to admit our sin and bring it to Jesus. And he will forgive. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, if we admit our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So beautiful. If you're suffering from the scars of abortion, Jesus wants to heal you. You bring your guilt, bring your pain to him, and he will forgive you. He will wash you white as snow. This church exists to extend the grace of Jesus Christ to everyone who needs it, and that's everyone, everyone. The ground at the cross is absolutely level, and we all need his grace. So we talk about it because many people are suffering, and they're suffering from a pain, they're suffering from a guilt that we know the cure to, Jesus. The other reason to talk about it is that though indeed there are many other injustices we could talk about, horrible injustices, um, human trafficking, child abuse, spouse abuse, racism, religious persecution, lots of injustices in the world. This injustice is unique because it's a socially acceptable injustice. It's legal. It's government-funded. And it has many powerful advocates. That's not like the other injustices. The other injustices are almost universally despised and uh, spoken against, but this one isn't. So it's an injustice that needs to be talked about because it's accepted, because it's hidden, and because, frankly, uh, we forget about it. And we want to forget about it. It's unpleasant, and we're busy, and there are lots of other things to give our attention to. But we must not forget about it. Because of the sanctity of human life. Every human life matters. Every human life matters to God. You matter to God. I matter to God. Every life matters to God. And therefore, every life needs to matter to us. So today we're going to look at a passage that reminds us of that, that every life matters to God. And should encourage us, should stir us up, especially if we're weary of the subject, if we're tired of talking about it, tired of praying about it, tired of being concerned about it. And, you know, frankly, sometimes we just wonder, well, what's the use? What's the point? We're going to look at a passage about a guy. um, You've probably heard of him. We call him the Good Samaritan. And he's the hero of a story that Jesus told. And his example teaches us some things that, uh, things we need to know about how we should think and how we should act when a human life is in jeopardy. Okay, so let's read it. It's Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But when a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, "Uh, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So Jesus wants us to be like this Samaritan. He wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus said, you know, that this was the second great commandment. This commandment comes second only to the first great commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm guessing this lawyer had probably heard Jesus say that, the first great commandment to love God, the second great commandment to love your neighbor. I'm guessing he'd heard that because he basically quotes back what Jesus had said on another occasion. Even though he knew it, though, he didn't quite get it. For him, it was a little too vague, a little too broad. And he wants Jesus to, you know, put some boundaries on this love your neighbor thing. I mean, really, who all do I really have to love? Is it just my next door neighbors? Are we talking the whole street? You know, let's let's have some boundaries here, because he doesn't want to have to love everyone. Come on. And that's when Jesus tells a story to uh, show him he's basically missing the point. Loving your neighbor is not about figuring out who your neighbor is. It's about being a neighbor when you have the opportunity to show love, to show mercy to someone in need, especially when their life is in danger whose life is at risk. And that's why I think this this has to include the unborn whose parents are thinking of aborting them because to them it seems like the best solution to a a difficult problem. So what I want to do is I want to consider how to love your unborn neighbors. And, and, And also their parents, those who are feeling like they have no other choice, This is about loving all our neighbors, but including and especially focusing on our unborn neighbors. I see at least five truths in this passage, five truths that we need to remember 
in order to love our unborn neighbors. And when I say remember, okay, let me clarify something here. When I say remember, I'm not talking about just a mental thing. Okay, I'm going to use the biblical idea of remembering, which is more than just something happening in your head. It's, it affects how you live. The biblical idea of remembering is to call something to mind in order to act. More like the word commemorate. So I'll just give you an example. For me, to remember my wedding anniversary is not simply to think, oh yeah, May 21st, that's my anniversary. Okay, and that's it. Oh, no, 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 no. No, to remember my anniversary is to recall that information and do something about it. Something to celebrate. To thank God for his gift of my wife. To show my appreciation to her for saying yes. Okay? So, that kind of remembering. Remembering to do something. All right, here we go. First truth. Remember that loving your neighbor is vital, not optional. Remember, loving your neighbor is vital, not optional. And we know this because Jesus elevates that command right up there with loving God. We know loving God's not optional. But I want you to see, Jesus does even more than that. He connects loving your neighbor with having eternal life. Did you see that? Did you get that connection? The lawyer asks him how to inherit eternal life And Jesus says, if you love God and love your neighbor, you will live. Just let that sink in for a minute, how significant that is. That means there is no having eternal life without loving your neighbor. There's no having eternal life without loving your neighbor. This is not an added extra you know, for the super spiritual among us. This is basic. If you believe in Jesus, you will love your neighbor. Now, we know Jesus does not mean that you earn eternal life by loving your neighbor or any other good deed. We know that because the Bible tells us that over and over again. There is no good thing we can do to achieve God's approval. You know, whether we're talking about loving our neighbor or, you know, whatever, memorizing the Bible, uh, helping the poor, feeding the hungry, there is no good thing we can do to achieve eternal life. Uh, Titus 3.5, look at this. God saved us, and this is just one of dozens of places we could look, but God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy. It's what he does. It's not what we do. And yet Jesus often talked like he did to this lawyer. To This, this is a guy who's an expert in the law of Moses. He's an expert. And, and Jesus often talked to religious people like this to help them see how much they need the grace of God, how much they need him. I mean, think about that. Yeah, just love God with all that you are and love your neighbors as yourself and you're good. I mean, anybody who thinks they can earn, you know, God's approval by loving God and loving neighbors so well 
that God gives them eternal life, you know, as a reward is completely diluted. Which is why Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, started out, first thing out of his mouth said, blessed are, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are the ones who have eternal life. Okay, well, what's poor in spirit? You know what it means? It means to realize you're spiritually bankrupt. It means you've got nothing. You've got nothing with which to bargain with God, nothing with which to purchase his approval by your merit. You can't achieve God's approval. Your only hope, my only hope, is to receive God's approval as a gift. That's our only hope. And that is exactly what Jesus came to achieve. He came to purchase for us God's approval as a gift that we receive when we trust him. He purchased that with his precious blood shed on the cross for us. That's how we gain God's approval when we receive that gift. Okay, but what the point here is that when you receive that gift, it begins to change you. It begins to change you because now there's a connection with God and His Holy Spirit and the Word of God begins to take root in our lives and it begins to change us. And one of those changes is loving our neighbor. But be clear Loving your neighbor is not a root. It's not the root of eternal life. It doesn't produce eternal life. It's a fruit of eternal life. Jesus is the root. Faith in Jesus, trusting him, produces eternal life, which bears fruit, one of which is loving our neighbor. But here's the thing. It's an absolutely necessary fruit. It's absolutely essential. If we don't love our neighbor, if we don't love our neighbor, we have no business thinking we're right with God. It's vital, it's not optional. Second thing to remember, remember that your neighbor's life is far more important than most other things. Your neighbor's life, whoever they are, wherever they are, born or unborn, your neighbor's life is far more important than other things. It, this is very interesting. You might have, you know, as you look at this story and you read about the priest and the Levite crossing to the other side of the road when they saw this guy, and you may think, man, how hard-hearted can you get? What is up with these guys? But you may not realize these guys worked in the temple. That was spiritually important work. I mean, that was a big deal. It was work that God commanded. And the thing is, you couldn't do that work if you were ceremonially unclean. Well, you know, one of the things that would make you ceremonially unclean is if you touched a dead body. So it's very likely these guys avoided that body because they had this spiritually important work to go do. And if they touched a dead body, they'd be disqualified and they couldn't do it. So, you know, they may very well have felt really bad for this guy, but they couldn't risk it. They thought their spiritual duties were more important than helping this guy. And they were wrong. Absolutely wrong. God's laws never excuse any of us from helping somebody whose life is in danger. 
You know, that was a point Jesus made over and over and over again. You know, especially when he interacted with these religious leaders, he, they had lost all perspective when it came to obeying God's laws and keeping their religious traditions. I mean, this happened all the time on the issue of the Sabbath. Jesus would heal people on the Sabbath, and it just ticked those guys off. He's just so irritated by that. And Jesus said, you guys are messed up. That's a paraphrase, but that's what he said. <laughs> You're messed up. It is not breaking the Sabbath to help a person in genuine need. You guys, you know, if you had one of your sheep fall into a pit, you would pull that sheep out on the Sabbath. Well, a human being is far more valuable than a stupid sheep. Rescuing a human life is so more important than keeping your religious rules. See, here's the thing. You're not keeping those rules because God wants you to. Because if you read his rules, if you read his word carefully, you would understand how much he values human life made in his image. You're not keeping those rules because God wants you to. You're keeping those rules because it makes you feel righteous. And feeling righteous is more important to you than saving somebody's life. There is hardly anything more important than saving a human life when we can. Human life matters so much to God. Third thing to remember. Remember that loving your neighbor is usually inconvenient and often costly. I think this is my least favorite point, but it's a good one. Wouldn't it be nice if all the opportunities that came our way to help people to love our neighbor happened in our spare time when we had nothing better to do. It almost never happens. Almost never happens. We are usually busy. But being busy is no excuse, especially when somebody's life is in danger. You know, Jesus did not care. He was not impressed that the priest and the Levite had spiritually important work to do. didn't matter. They blew it. They made the wrong choice. You know, I'm pretty sure the Samaritan was busy. He was on his way somewhere. There's probably something waiting for him at the other end that was important. But notice, he just willingly inconveniences himself because here's a life at risk. And it it cost him time. It cost him money. Uh, At least two days' wages. A denarius was a day's wage. Loving your neighbor is going to cost you. It'll cost us. Number four, remember that loving your neighbor involves good deeds, not just good intentions. We're not told, isn't it interesting? We're not told what the priest was thinking or the Levite because it doesn't matter. We're not told how they felt. That doesn't matter because what they thought and what they felt did not result in any action. They didn't do anything to help a person in desperate need. So we have to get this. Following Jesus, following Jesus does not just mean avoiding doing bad things. And maybe some of you kind of got that notion, you know, maybe following Jesus was all about don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, stop enjoying yourself, stop it. Following Jesus does not just mean avoid doing bad things. It means avoiding neglecting 
doing good things. You know, there's a scripture, to the one who knows the, thing, the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So failing to help somebody whose life is at risk, when you could have helped, when you could have helped, is disobedience. And I think this is very relevant to the sanctity of human life. You know, it, it's, it's not that hard. It's fairly easy to think the right thoughts about this issue. You know, to be convinced that, you know, human life created in God's image, all human life is important, all human life deserves protection and care and justice and so forth, that's easy. And it's fairly easy to feel the right feelings. You know, to be horrified at how casually our society discards unwanted human beings, to be repulsed by descriptions of what abortion actually is, what it does, or, or to feel compassion for women who think they have no choice because they're being pressured by a boyfriend or a husband or by parents to get rid of the problem. It's easy to think the right thoughts, it's easy to feel the right feelings, but it's not enough. It's not enough. Right thoughts, right feelings have to lead to right actions. What actions? What can we do? What can we do to show mercy to unborn neighbors? What can we do to to show mercy to women and men who are feeling trapped? Well, I encourage you to give it some thought, talk to one another, discuss it. I'm going to give you just a few ideas, and these are just a few. There are probably a lot more things that we can do. Uh, First on the list is to pray. Pray, Praying is doing something. It really is doing something. And I think we should be praying fervently and regularly that God will change hearts, because that's what God can do. God can change hearts. I think we should be praying regularly and fervently that God will make abortion as unthinkable as slavery is. You realize slavery was once socially acceptable. You realize slavery was once legal. Slavery was once argued, you know, for. Nobody does that anymore. Slavery is now unthinkable. It's not an acceptable option. I think we should pray that abortion will happen the same way. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing, which means don't give up. Second, give. Give to organizations who who are channeling those gifts into practical help. So, for example, our local Options 360 pregnancy clinic or other groups that help women facing unwanted pregnancies. Now, Options 360 is part of our church budget, so every time you give to this church, part of that goes to that, but, you know, it's a relatively small amount. Maybe you could do more. Make it part of your personal budget. Give. Third action, speak up. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Speak up on social media when you see the truth being distorted by misleading arguments. And if you don't know how to respond to some of those arguments, I've put a link on your note sheet. It's really good. You can go there and you can educate yourself on good responses to faulty arguments. You know, if nothing else, though, you can always do this. When you hear an argument that sounds compelling, stop and ask yourself this. Would that argument work if we were talking about a life already born? And if it wouldn't, then it shouldn't work for the life of an unborn. Because 
there's no difference in humanity. You know, where we are does not determine what we are. Size and development, degree of dependency, none of those things make us human. So if, for example, here, give you an example. If, if uh, somebody's got a toddler, you know, a little, little demanding little toddler, you know, and just caring for that child is such a burden. It's emotionally difficult. It's financially, it's a hardship. It's just hard. And it, it's interfering with the parents' plans for the future. Okay, how would we help those parents? Well, we would do everything we could to help them, you know, manage. But what we would never say is, well, I guess you can kill the toddler. You wouldn't do that. That's not an acceptable choice. Fourth thing you can do, vote carefully. Now, I'm going to be blunt here. If a candidate refuses to protect human life at all stages... I think that disqualifies them for just about every public office there is. Now, there are probably some public offices that don't have any connection with this issue, okay, but many of them do. And if somebody's somebody's basic position is, I will not act to protect innocent human life, I think they're disqualified. Now, nobody's going to come out and say that. You're not going to hear a candidate say, yes, I refuse to protect innocent human life. They don't say that. What they say is something like, I'm personally against abortion, but I support the right of someone else to make that choice, that difficult choice, without government interference. And that sounds so lofty. That sounds so impressive. But would it, it only works if abortion is not the taking of an innocent human life. You're not going to hear anybody say, I'm personally against taking the life of an infant, but I support the right of someone to make that difficult choice for themselves. Personally, I'm against slavery, but I support the right of plantation owners to make that choice for themselves. It's not an option. It's not an option. No one has the right to choose injustice. And there are many other things we can do. So give it some thought. Think about ways to to show love, give support, because Jesus expects us to do, not just feel and think. And then lastly... Fifth thing to remember, remember that God uses our obedience to make a difference. God uses our obedience to make a difference. I'm confident one of the reasons we get weary of this issue, we don't want to talk about it, we want to move on to other things, is because we feel like it's hopeless. Like it just doesn't matter. Nothing ever seems to change. I mean, over 3,000 abortions every day. And all kinds of powerful people supporting it. And Hollywood supports it. And, and there's just these clever, uh, misleading arguments that people use to deceive and delude themselves and, and all this stuff. What is the use of trying to love our unborn neighbors? Here's the use. Last year, our local Options 360 Pregnancy Clinic gave free pregnancy tests to, over 12, to 1,200 women, performed over 700 free ultrasounds, As a result of those services and other services like giving support, uh, you know, items like diapers and and baby clothes and so forth, as a result of their services, 592 babies' lives were saved. 590, that's almost 600. That's over three, three times the number of people in this room right now. Think about that. 
That's one clinic out of hundreds across the country. Now, what would have happened if nobody had prayed for those clinic workers? What if nobody had prayed for the women facing those difficult situations? What if no one had donated money to buy the ultrasound equipment and the pregnancy tests and the maternity items to help those women in need? What if no one had spoken up when they had a friend in a difficult situation and said, hey, have you heard of Options 360? A lot fewer children would be alive. It does make a difference. Maybe it's not as big a difference as we would wish, but it makes a difference. So don't give up. Don't give up. Evil is being exposed. Babies are being saved. Lives are being changed. I wish I had time to tell you some stories I heard at the last um, Options 360 banquet I went to. I don't. Okay, so I just wanted to tell you. I can't. Okay, one. There was a couple. <laughs> and uh, they went in there, and uh, boyfriend-girlfriend situation, and they offered the free ultrasound, and the, the girl said, okay, and the, and the guy said, I don't think you should do that. And she said, why? She said, because when you see that baby, you're going to fall in love with that baby. And as he tells this story, when they watched the ultrasound, he fell in love with the baby. And he came to Christ. That was awesome. Don't give up. Don't give up. God is doing great things through your prayers, through your gifts, through your actions, even if you don't hear about it. All right, let's pray. Father, you've given us the message of hope and of life and of forgiveness and sins washed away. Lord, may we not grow weary of doing good. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us. If there's anybody here today who's struggling with a scar, a hurt, a bad memory, Father, will you just pour out your grace on them? May we as a people just extend your love and grace to one another. We all have had those crimson stains. But in Jesus, you wash us white as snow. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.